Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. Today we're talking about diversity and inclusion insights from IBM South Africa and that experience. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help elevate the quality of leadership across the world and work with those leaders to co-create a thriving future. Our work includes assisting leaders in navigating disruptive trends and developing strategies to transform themselves and their organizations to thrive now and in the future. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. I am delighted to have on our show today in person, Roger Madison Jr. Roger is the founder and CEO of Izania. He established Izania in 2003 after a successful career as a sales executive for IBM. Izania is an online community of black entrepreneurs, professionals, consumers, all dedicated to economic and social empowerment. His goal is to help bridge the digital divide. His passion is helping to prepare young people for the business of life. He's actively engaged in our community of Columbus, Ohio, as a board member, volunteer, and mentor with Junior Achievement of Central Ohio, Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Central Ohio, and the Boys and Girls Clubs of Columbus. He's a native of Farmville, Virginia, and received his BS in Business Administration from the George Washington University School of Business and Government Studies. He and his wife, Joyce, live in Gahanna, Ohio. They have two adult children and two grandchildren. So diversity and inclusion are topics of interest not only in the U.S., but growing across the world today. And Roger's going to join us to share about his experiences growing up in Virginia and his experiences in South Africa and what he learned to further our conversations about diversity and inclusion in the world today. So, Roger, let's jump right into your story from growing up in Farmville, Virginia, and then into your early career at IBM. Well, Maureen, thanks for having me. Never would I have thought that my story would be important, but uh, all stories are important, and, and I'm, I'm just pleased to be with you today. Thank you. And one of the things I think that's so helpful in the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion is understanding the stories of people who have grown up in different bodies and different geographies and gone through the world with a different experience than we've had. And so I think your story is incredibly important. Well, thank you. So let's start with Farmville, Virginia. And why does that matter? Well, Farmville, Virginia is not well known. It is the county seat of Prince Edward County. And one of the school districts that was a part of the Brown versus Board of Education case. So for our listeners who don't know what that is because we have a global audience, what is Brown versus the Board of Education? The Brown versus Topeka, Kansas okay. Board of Education okay. was a Supreme Court case ruling in 1954 that outlawed segregation in public schools. Okay. Basically, Justice Earl Warren said separate was inherently unequal. That was the defining statement of, mm -hmm. of, of his majority opinion. And so growing up in Farmville, my mother was a teacher. And when the students at the high school in Farmville went on strike in 1951, she lost her job. Mm. Everyone whom the leaders of Prince Edward County thought had anything to do 
with the students going on strike were fired if they worked for a public entity. And so my mother lost her job and she had to travel 15, 20 miles away from home to work at a hospital as a nutritionist. Uh, she was a home economics teacher. She had to do that every day. In fact, she had to learn how to drive to do that. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, so after learning to drive, she, she had to drive 20 miles every day one way to, to work and back. The high school where she worked was in walking distance from our home, so she, she never had to drive before that. Well, the Supreme Court case ruling occurred in 1954, and Virginia was the state that led the massive resistance to that ruling. As such, when the Supreme Court felt that the states were dragging their feet and issued a follow-up ruling imploring them to move with deliberate haste, the state of Virginia said no and chose Prince Edward County as a trial case. And that trial case closed the public schools. They said, before we will desegregate, we will, we will not have public schools. So the public schools in Prince Edward County were closed. We had no public schools from 1959 to 1964, and it took a Supreme Court ruling in 1964 to get the schools reopened. What age were you at that point? I was 13 when the schools okay. were closed. My mother packed up me and my two brothers and sister, and we moved to Maryland, where she found another teaching job. And uh, we went to school there while the schools were closed in Virginia. And 1,600 black students were without schools. The local leaders of Prince Edward County built and created Prince Edward Academy for the white students. And so most of them were able to go to school all along during that period, but many black students were deprived of an education for five years. So how did that then inform your career as you went forward? When the schools reopened, there was quite a lot of attention, as you can imagine, from the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the American Friends Society. A lot of organizations, volunteer teachers from various universities from around the country to help us to restart our schools. And during that reopening, one of the visitors to our school was Bobby Kennedy. He was attorney general at the time. Mm. And I recall something that, that he said to us. He said, you know, you have suffered a lot, and we are in the midst of a lot of change in this country. That was in 1963, okay. fall of 63. So the civil rights legislation had not passed yet. And he, he said to us, what we can do, and we will do all we can do, is to just open doors of opportunity you're going to have to go through those doors. Mm -hmm. But that's the best we can do, is to open those doors. That's, that's one of the reasons why I uh, was encouraged to attend the George Washington University. My mother was an HBCU graduate from Virginia State University. And so HBC being historically black college? Yes. Okay. Again, uh, I just want to make sure our listeners understand right. what, what we're uh, talking about. And, and I would have gone to an HBCU, but 
as these new opportunities were unfolding, my teachers in, encouraged those of us who they felt were outstanding students to take advantage of the opportunity to go to these newly opened white institutions of higher education. So I was directed towards the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. And then at some point you graduated on time and with honors. Unfortunately, (laughs) no. Okay. Uh, That um, education was interrupted by poor academic performance because when I got there, I discovered that I was in a completely different world, a world I had no familiarity with in terms of the education process. Hmm. There were 16 black students on campus at the time. Out of thousands. Out of thousands. And so I was in a completely new world, and I felt, well, something's wrong here. Either I've been told I'm really smart and I'm not, Mm. or these kids have been taught something to prepare them for this that I have not been prepared for. And I struggled. Okay. And in the meantime, um, this, that was the middle of the Vietnam crisis. I got drafted. I ended up in the Air Force and started my family. And after leaving the Air Force in 1973, I returned to George Washington. And I did graduate with honors in 1977. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so not early. Not early. <laughs> okay. And so that Air Force experience helped prepare you for the rest of college. Absolutely. It did. It, it helped me to, to understand that there, there's, a, there's a really diverse world out here. The Air Force put me in a situation where there were people from everywhere, all mm-hmm. over the country, mm-hmm. and, and we were all prepared to work together as a unit. And, and, and we, we came to respect and learn from one another. Mm-hmm. And and that's when I, I got more comfortable recognizing my own skills and talents mm-hmm. and learning ability and and how to apply myself differently when I went back to George Washington. And then you went to IBM. I went to IBM as I was attending George Washington. Okay. That was another of my unique experiences. I, I, I showed up for the interview and they asked me to take this examination, this test. And I sat there going through the questions in the test. Mm-hmm. And once again, I was being asked questions about technology and engineering and, and data and, and computers and, and things that I had not been exposed to. Mm-hmm. I had some general awareness, and so I got through the questions the best I could. Mm-hmm. So then I went to the interview, and, and as I was doing the interview, the person who interviewed me asked me, how'd you do on the test? How do you think you did on the test? We were scoring the test. Mm-hmm. Just curious, how do you think you did? I said, I don't know. I don't have a clue. He said, why, why is that? He said, did you think it was hard? I said, no, it wasn't hard. It was just asking me about stuff I didn't know anything about. Mm-hmm. So it was different, but not hard. There was nothing that I encountered on that exam that I couldn't learn. Okay, but but you just didn't know it. I just at didn't that know it. It didn't it didn't frighten me or scare me mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. Or, or or make me think that I was in a place that I couldn't mm-hmm. perform because I'd gone through the Air Force for. Seven I was going to say you'd been in 
Vietnam. So I, well, was, I did not go to Vietnam. Okay. I, I was very fortunate. I spent my out-of-the-country years in the Air Force, three years in London, England. Oh, so that wasn't quite the same war experience. It wasn't the war. It was at the same time. We were supportive Mm -hmm. of of that effort. I was in the Air Force Communications Service. Okay. But I I went to the Air Force to avoid going to Vietnam. Okay. Uh, That that was my goal, and I I was successful in that. So we go through the interview, and and, and what was supposed to be a 30-minute to one-hour conversation turned into lunch and two hours. At the end of the interview, I was offered a job. I said, oh, did you get the result of the test? He said, no, it doesn't matter. I, so to this day, I don't know how well or how poorly <laughs> I did, but I, I am certain I didn't do well. But what I, I think occurred during that conversation was an appreciation for my eagerness to be a part of what was going on at IBM, where excellence is the standard. Mm-hmm. So I was fortunate enough to to become a part of that and spent 28 years there. So during our call a couple of weeks ago, you talked about quotas and diversity hires and how you think that may have impacted the selection process at IBM. Absolutely. When I joined IBM, the federal government was IBM's largest customer. Mm-hmm. And that was in 1973. And so the beginning of the affirmative action era. And so IBM was looking everywhere for talented minority employees mm-hmm. to meet the requirements of affirmative action for the federal government because they annually reviewed diversity measures for their vendors. Mm-hmm. And so I was fortunate enough to be at the right place at the right time, they needed more minority employees. And I was ushered into the company during that period. And the reason I want to make sure our listeners hear that is that those kinds of programs are often under scrutiny, and yet you are living evidence that when given opportunities, people who wouldn't have been invited in the door do a brilliant job. Yes, indeed. And and that's that's a part of, as I've thought about this whole diversity and equity and inclusion thrust that's going on in mm-hmm. the business world today, corporate leaders need to practice a different form of affirmative action to get through this phase of the expansion of their community of employees. And I, and I think that rather than being driven by an external quota, so to mm-hmm. speak, or affirmative mm-hmm. action goal, I think companies need to create their own internal goals for inclusion. And if they don't, it won't occur naturally. And I think that's the piece that's so important. So we're going to come back to that topic. For our listeners, I encourage you just to think about your journeys and how is Rogers different and also how is it the same? How are each of us overcoming challenges of different sorts? So while we talk about diversity and how we're different, I also encourage us to think about how we're similar and the spirit we all have of wanting the best for our families and ourselves. 
So, Roger, let's now move into a conversation about your experience with IBM in South Africa. But fill in the blanks quickly. How did you go from new hire to a significant role in South Africa? Well, uh, my early years in IBM were experiences of being the first to do everything that I ever did. Uh, I was the first sales rep in Montgomery County, Maryland, first black sales rep for IBM in Montgomery County. I was the first person to, to do a lot of the the things that, that they were asking us to do. When I went to sales school, there were 30 of us in the sales school class, and I was the first black person to graduate as the president of my sales school class. And so as I was doing all of these things, I was discovering and learning very, very rapidly. Uh, my first management assignment came when I was working at IBM headquarters, and we were changing the company from three divisions to two. And it looked like many of us were not going to get an opportunity to move from staff to management. So one afternoon, I learned that one of my white colleagues was out interviewing for a job. But we had been told that none of us were going to get those opportunities to interview. We would have to find a place for you in this new organization. So I went to my director and I said, I don't understand. How are other people getting opportunities to interview for for management jobs and not me? And he said, I'm not aware of that. I said, well, you should be. You're the director. I'm just working hard every Mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. That was at noon. At four o'clock that afternoon, my phone rings and a gentleman in Chicago said, are you Roger Madison? I said, yes. He said, oh, I just interviewed a young lady. It happened to have been my colleague. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, I have a staff meeting, and I'm going to announce a new manager on my team. I am prepared to offer her a job, but I've been told that I cannot offer her a job until I speak to you. Hmm. So this puts you kind of on the spot. (laughs) So I'm in New... New Jersey. Okay. I had to get on an airplane and fly to Chicago. We had an interview at 10 o'clock. P.M. (laughs) P.M. And at the meeting at 8 o'clock the next morning, I was announced as the new manager. Wow. (laughs) So, So this speaks to your competence. And I think that's a really important point to draw, that you earned everything you got. Not so much that I earned it, because... There there are lots of really talented people. Mm -hmm. It's that I was not given an opportunity. And if I had not spoken up, I I would not have Mm -hmm. received that opportunity. And so one of the things that from that point to my arrival in Columbus as a business unit manager in 1988. So I go from 1981 to 1988, marketing sales school manager in Dallas, business unit manager in Columbus. And I was watching TV one night and Nelson Mandela spoke to a joint session of Congress. The next morning, I went into my manager's office and I said, IBM has boycotted South Africa and I know that that boycott is gonna end soon. I want to be one of the people to go to South Africa to re 
start IBM South Africa. A few interviews later, I was selected for a team of 23 people. We traveled to South Africa to reestablish IBM South Africa, which we had left South Africa during the apartheid boycotts. Mm -hmm. When I got there, I had an interesting experience that, that kind of awoke me. How do you advance culture? The question that I was asked more often than any other in the first six months I was there by blacks and whites alike was, Roger, how do you like our new South Africa? With a bright <laughs> smile on their face. And I'm thinking to myself, look, I grew up in Virginia. I know what happens when people are told that they have to change. Usually there's this period of massive resistance. Mm -hmm. We're only six months into this deal and people are saying, how do you like our new South Africa? So I, I met one day with the mayor of Pretoria, the capital city of South Africa, and I said, look, I, I got to know, this doesn't make sense to me based on my experience. How is it that everybody, where are all of these people that are the architects of apartheid for the last 50 years? Where'd they go? He said, Roger, the reality is here in South Africa, most of us whites wanted this to be over with 20 years ago. Mm. So when Nelson Mandela was released from prison and we had the opportunity to avoid a civil war, we were excited about that. But what I recognized was a very genuine and sincere interest in actually creating a new South Africa. And that made all the difference in the world. It wasn't mm -hmm. a large, massive resistance to the change. Of course, white people were only 5% of the population. That makes things, <laughs> makes things a, a little bit different <laughs> than, than my experience in, in Virginia. However, they were genuine. And as we recreated IBM South Africa, I had an opportunity to mentor a lot of young, new Africans who came into the company. And here's what's, I think, significant here. One day, a young man showed up for an interview 40 minutes late. Mm -hmm. I allocated an hour. He shows up 40 minutes late. First thing I said to him, we've got 20 minutes to do what I had planned to do mm -hmm. with you in an hour. Mm -hmm. After about 15 minutes of very fascinating conversation, I said, well, you know, this is all really very interesting, but I have another meeting, but I need to tell you something. First of all, you're not dressed properly for the interview. Secondly, you were, first you were late. Secondly, you're not dressed properly for the, for the interview. And you need to understand that in this company, those are not Acceptable. ways to get started. He said, well, let, let me help you out a little bit here. He said, first of all, I don't own a suit. Mm. So I can't dress like you. Secondly, my family pulled together all the money we had mm. to get me here. And from Soweto, where I live, to where you are out here in the suburb of Johannesburg, no one had ever been. Wow. And I was trying to catch these informal taxis. I left home at 10 o'clock this morning trying to get here on time at 2 because nobody knew had ever heard of IBM or knew where it was. Wow. Now, he was a graduate. He had graduated mm -hmm. from college because the family had invested all of the money they had to get him through college. He was the hope of the family. Mm -hmm. That helped me to understand, wait a minute, I'm not paying attention to this 
young man's circumstance. Mm-hmm. I'm expecting him to be exactly like what I am. And so I told my secretary to extend my apologies until my 3 o'clock appointment. We'll have to meet tomorrow. I spent another hour talking to the gentleman, and I said, now, if you need money to get home, I can help you out there. But when you get home, tell your folks that the new job that you've just been offered comes with an automobile. So you'll be able to get to work on time from this point forward. And he did well. He and many of the others, uh, two of the people that I had the opportunity to mentor while I was there, have done exceptionally well. One of them is currently the executive director of IBM South Africa. Another of them is the executive director of Microsoft South Africa. So given opportunity and coaching and mentoring, people can achieve tremendous success. But I learned that I had to pay attention to their circumstance and help them to get from where they were to where we needed them to be. And when you see that potential, you have to nurture it. The organization has to nurture it. Mm-hmm. Everybody's not going to resist being sidelined and demand opportunities for an interview like I had to do for my first management job. So what the organization has to do is to help these people along. While the situation isn't perfect in South Africa today, there's been a tremendous amount of progress particularly within certain corporate structures where they made the commitment to invest in people who may not have Mm -hmm. had an opportunity to be a part of the organization at all. So what I hear is there were people who stood out to you. It wasn't everyone who came across your path. Correct. But you were really good at identifying who were those truly standout people and you elevated them. I, I trust you treated everyone with equity and care, but there were some that just were exceptional. And they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. What comes natural in the world that you're a part of mm-hmm. and, and you've, is that when people have seen your potential and ability, you were offered, it just came natural that people would mm-hmm. offer you an opportunity. You would go interview for a job, people would see that potential or or you would be, your talent would be recognized and you would be directed to something else. That doesn't happen with black employees when I was coming mm-hmm, up through mm-hmm. the business and maybe not even today. Mm-hmm. It's certainly not enough. Not enough. Not enough. Again, I encourage our listeners to think about the phrase not enough. When have we given not enough care? So, Roger, let's talk about the changes that you recommend in business, in nonprofit, in government to help address the DEI challenges we're facing in 2020, because they're different than they were in the 70s and 80s. They're different in the U.S. than they are in South Africa, I'm assuming. You said earlier that companies need to come up with objectives themselves. Well... I thought about this. And, and, mm, I assume and, you have. <laughs> and uh, let me put it in general terms and then in specific. What generally has to happen is that leaders need to think differently about their so-called diverse population, those mm-hmm. who are not like 
us, the non-white population. Mm -hmm. And in thinking about that, what they really need is a genuine curiosity. There's a common understanding that if our population is more diverse, it, it adds value to our company. Mm -hmm. But very few companies are able to quantify that value. It seems intuitive that if our employee population looks like the population we serve, we can benefit from that. And there is good data in the research arena that does quantify that. I haven't seen it. But if you approach it that way, then it becomes a numbers game that you're always chasing, mm -hmm. and you don't always end up with a new culture. Okay. Because what you're after is a new culture. Mm -hmm. What I experienced was I had to adapt to the culture that was there. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of the time that I was at IBM, it felt like I was drinking from a fire hose, trying to figure out what this culture was, adapting, trying to be like an, quote, IBMer. Mm -hmm. If DEI is going to have real value, what the leaders need to think about is what does our new culture look like when we've invested in this new cadre of, of employees, so to speak. It reminds me of, of, of an expression when, when I was moving through the ranks at IBM that we used to often use was that IQ gets you hired. We hire smart people. Mm -hmm. But EQ, your emotional quotient, gets you promoted. That's what moves you. Mm -hmm. What needs to happen, in my opinion, is a reverse EQ. The leaders need to have a sense of, of empathy and understanding of and be genuinely curious about learning mm -hmm. as opposed to looking at the demographics and saying, if, if our demographics look like this and our customer demographics looks similar, mm -hmm. We're going to do okay. I suspect they would have done okay anyway mm -hmm. because they're focused on growing their business. So how do, you, how do you get from where we are today to where you need to be from a leadership standpoint? And one of the things that we're beginning to do at Junior Achievement is first you need to just do a deep dive and an honest assessment of, of where the organization is, what, what the people who are there what they feel, what they believe, what their perceptions are, because perception is reality. So I want to take a step back. You're on the board of Junior Achievement. Yes. And they've taken a significant initiative to implement diversity, equity, and inclusion within the organization, but also at the board level. And I think that's critical for listeners to think about our boards need to buy in or we don't get there. That's where... The leadership, at least in nonprofit organizations, shape the, the company, mm -hmm. the organization, and, and provide the, the identity and, and value structure mm -hmm. for the organization. So that's the first thing you need to do. And, and if you don't do that, you will make assumptions that could lead you down rabbit holes that don't get you to, to where you want to be. Once that is done, so about five steps in this process. Number two is you need to then set some measurable goals. Mm -hmm. If this is where we are, 
where do we really want to be? Mm-hmm. And that's where I was saying earlier that the leaders of, of the organizations need to come up with their own affirmative action mm-hmm. goals. Our organization doesn't look like the community or it doesn't look like what we mm-hmm. want it to be. So we need to set some hard targets and some goals to get there. Step number three is you got to create a pipeline to make sure that 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 change, that that new culture that you're developing is sustainable. Well, and I want to make a comment about that specifically because I've seen too often organizations implement DE&I or other culturally appropriate and desirable, the good things to do. And then as soon as the money starts to flag for various reasons, they abandon the initiative. So so having the the commitment all the way down re, and all the way up is foundational. And and, and it, it, it manifests itself in different ways at different levels of the organization. As I as I mentioned earlier about opportunity. There are multiple levels of opportunity. There's mm-hmm. the opportunity to just join the company. There's the opportunity to advance from entry level to making a, a contribution mm-hmm. maybe as a first level manager. Then there's creating opportunities and mentoring that's necessary to, to help people move from, from mid-level management to, mm-hmm. to senior management. And you've got to invest at all three levels and make sure that the pipeline at each of those levels mm-hmm. is populated with enough participants so that the winners and losers weed themselves out. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, many people will still experience, and I'm, I have a friend who's at IBM now, a young mm-hmm. friend who, who's at IBM, and I asked him, how is it there now? And, and, and he, he told me, he said, Roger, I was in a meeting last week, and I was the only black person in the room. I travel all over the world with IBM, and I'm mm-hmm. still – and, and that's the way it was when you were there mm-hmm. because the pipeline isn't filling. Okay. And if you don't do that, then then there's no way for the organization to to thrive because those people who find themselves the only person in a room exit. Mm-hmm. And now there's nobody in the room. Yeah. So those targets need need to be a commitment needs to be made mm-hmm. to those targets. If if you look around and say there's not enough of whatever type of equity standard that you want. Mm-hmm. If, if, if there's not enough of those people on the team, in the room, at the organization, mm-hmm. you just need to make a hard commitment to go find them and bring them in. And keep them. And keep them. And, but to keep them, you need to be genuinely interested mm-hmm. in yeah. what, what, what value do they really bring. It, yeah, it's not a checklist. <laughs> it's not a checklist. And that reverse EQ being genuinely curious, understanding, listening, and not making the environment so rigid that that they have to adapt to to your culture. Mm-hmm. What you really want, and, and the commitment you need to make, is that we want to create a new culture because you know, the military service has proven that you can get people to adapt to your culture. We can turn people from the most diverse population in the world to a fighting unit in six weeks. Wow. 
We can do that in the military. Mm -hmm. And they all think alike, they act alike, they move alike, they respond alike, and they win on the battlefield. Uh, you can do that. And, and you can do that in, in, in the marketplace mm -hmm. as well. But what you have is not a military unit. You, you haven't taken advantage of the diversity, and, and the business world is different than the military. Mm -hmm. The military, everybody has to salute and say yes, sir, and move when they're told to. In the business world, you want your organization to thrive and grow and develop and become better. You want your mm -hmm. values to shape the future, and when the contribution to those values come from a diverse set of backgrounds, you have a richer culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Leaders, number four, leaders need to be an advocate for what they want to happen. Mm -hmm. You can't publish the goals, put them in a book, and put the book on a shelf. And step away. Uh, and step away. Leaders need to be invested. Mm -hmm. They need to maybe take a little risk mm -hmm. and step out. In, in front, they need to lead. It's mm -hmm. as simple as that. Mm -hmm. yeah. They need to lead. If, mm -hmm. in fact, they genuinely want to mm -hmm. have a new culture that, that represents diversity, mm -hmm. equity, and, and inclusion. And, of course, then the final thing is you, you got to follow through. Follow up. You, you can't abandon ship when a crisis occurs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, as you say, if we run out of money or if, or if, if some other crisis occurs in the marketplace, well, we, we don't have time to focus on this program now. we got to mm -hmm. focus on survival of the organization, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And yet this should be core to the survival. It should be, but it doesn't come natural. It'll be a while before it's natural. I think the Z generation mm -hmm. is, is going to adapt more naturally than those of us who are boomers and X, Y, and, 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 and millennial. <laughs> I just think that their life's experiences, their exposure mm -hmm. through technology and whatnot to different cultural influences mm -hmm. will help them to be more accepting. But the challenge is bigger than it appears because there's a segment of our population that has been deliberately excluded it's, it's not an exclusion mm -hmm. by accident. It's an exclusion on purpose. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take some extra energy to overcome that because it, it has a negative impacts on both sides of the equation. Mm -hmm. there, there are black employees, for example, or, or, or black workers who, who wonder, I, I wonder if they want me there. They're even cautious and anxious about applying for jobs at certain places mm -hmm. because they perceive it's not going to be a welcoming environment. And in some cases, they're right. And in many cases, they're <laughs> right. Yeah. So there's a lot of work to be done to overcome these barriers. But uh, leaders have to lead, become advocates, and make sure that when they establish these measurable goals, that they follow through to achieve them. Beautiful. So in you've got one minute. Do you want to summarize what is for you? You've gone through the five steps. Any closing thoughts that you want every leader to hear and have top of mind as they think about DE&I? I heard a quote recently from Bernard Coleman. He's a 
chief diversity officer at Gusto, a Silicon Valley company. He used to be at Uber Mm -hmm. and uh, worked at Inc. Magazine. And this quote got my attention. If the smoke doesn't alarm you, the fire most certainly will. (laughs) Leaders need to see the smoke and not ignore it because underneath that smoke is fire. And we've seen it throughout the summer with the protests and mm-hmm. and the Black Lives Matter movement and others, Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. If the smoke doesn't alarm you, the fire most certainly will. And let us not get to be on fire before we take action. Correct. So, Roger, thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening through the entire conversation. I hope that Roger's story actually inspires you to take action and that his five steps give you a path to go forward. We're going to post those steps on our blog to make sure that you can refer back to them. Thank you for listening. Please like us, share us, and come back and listen again. Mm -hmm.